The important thing is to keep the right perspective. If you've come up with an idea that gets shot down, then approach it from a different angle if you really believe in it. You're listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for another episode. Unfortunately, many succession plans fail due to mismanaged expectations, a lack of understanding and respect from all parties, and a lack of teamwork or synergy among the planners involved. Today's guest is Christine Schoen, the Vice President of Operations at FP Transitions, and she hopes to help change that. FP Transitions is a business that focuses on helping advisors build a seamless succession plan that benefits founders, planners, and everyone involved in the practice. Straight ahead, we cover succession planning from the point of view of a lead advisor or founder and of a financial planner who might want to become a successor. Don't miss it. FP Transitions is committed to creating enduring businesses for financial professionals. We are leaders in promoting the sustainability of the industry. We have created over 800 next-generation business owners through succession planning and enterprise development. FPA members can learn more about next-generation strategy, financing, and communication at fptransitions.com slash nextgenerationfpa. FP Transitions is a strategic partner of the FPA and a proud sponsor of the next-gen community. Like you, we believe in the power of planning. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Can you tell us what your role is at FP Transitions? I'm uh, Vice President of Strategic Development and Operations at FP Transitions. And basically what that means is that I have a very messy hat closet. Uh, I oversee operations. Uh, I do our own recruiting. I handle corporate relations. Um, I've got folks here that help me out with each of those things uh, as needed. Um, and then just trying to envision the future of, of our company. And, and I work very closely um, with our CEO, Brad Bierman, um, and with David Grouse Sr. to try to figure out what we're going to, what we're going to be doing in the next two to five years. Um, Brad takes the 10 to 15 year view. Um, he's our, our great visionary. Um, and then I try to, I try to dial that back into uh, more, m- more um, achievable milestones as we get to that, that long range view. So you really understand these new planners who are coming in and buying practices, the messiness of owning a business. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the questions that I have, I mean, you guys deal with succession plans. And I know I talked to so many advisors who are really interested in being a succession plan. But, you know, one of the questions that I've heard, or maybe that was hasn't been explicitly asked sometimes, it's kind of at the root is, how do I get my boss to view me as a successor? Um, this might sound a little cheesy, but ownership is really a state of mind. And for the the advisors that I talk to that that get into that minority stake, you know, you ask them what were they doing before they became a partner? What were they doing before they became an owner? And they they acted like an owner before they were given the opportunity. So you, what is the secret sauce to having a, a founder who? who offers you an investment opportunity and, and, and lets you into the equity circle, well, you have to be acting like an owner anyway. You need to excel at your job. You need to not be afraid to put in those extra hours. But it's, it's not just about hours. It's about understanding and keeping the culture of your business. Um, it's about identifying opportunities and finding solutions. And you need to be able to communicate and have, have an open um, 
have open communication with the owner of the business so that they see you as a contributor and they see you as an asset. And uh, there's, you know, I hear from advisors that say that, that they are doing that and, you know, it's still not working. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't, don't change. If you are taking ownership of your clients and taking responsibility and you're taking pride in your work and you're striving to excel as a financial advisor and a contributor within the business, then by all means, keep, keep doing that. It's, it's really a state of mind and that is going to serve you well in your current position or in any, any future position if you have to go someplace else. It can be challenging to get uh, an entrepreneur to, well, on the one hand, just to pay attention and to realize that it might be time for succession planning and that, that you are there and you're interested and you're capable. Uh, because an entrepreneur is, is looking at the business and always trying to get it bigger and better and stronger. And that's how they were able to build that business that you're not part of. So part of it is a, uh, just getting their attention on the topic. And then making your case that you know you are an owner, and you have to do that with your actions before you can do it with your words. One of the things I hear is you know I'm trying to do this, but the owner just isn't there. How do you know if the owner is ready to have these conversations, or that the owner is in a place where they're open to this? That is a really interesting question um, because you can't you can't do it based on age. We've certainly had uh, founders that have come to us in their mid mid forties or. My favorite is a 34-year-old advisor who says, I need a succession plan. Um, and we've got an abundance of advisors who start way too late. Um, I think you need to approach it in a, in a problem-solving manner. Um, a lot of businesses, as they start to grow, they, uh, they extend beyond the abilities of a single producer or even a single owner. And if, if all of the other elements are right and the, the advisor is of a certain age and they have a certain tenure in the business, then you can certainly approach your, your boss um, and say, hey, you know, we've grown X amount in the last year. We're taking on this amount of new clients. I am handling X, Y, and Z responsibilities. You know, I'm opening new accounts. Uh, I've mentored a paraplanner. Um, I am taking on uh, seminars to bring in new clients. I would, I think it would be really beneficial for our company to, let's think about new owners. I would love to invest in the business. And I think that as a team that we can take this business even further together. And you need to be able to build a business case for being a successor if you if you are unsure that your that your boss is there. Um, but the important thing is having open communication and approaching it from a problem solving kind of a scenario, especially if you don't know if the if your boss is at that stage yet. So you just said something really interesting that you need to build the business case for. Um for the succession plan. And you work with so many different successors. Well, both sides of it, not, not just the successors, but what, what is a successful business case for proposing a succession plan for, for like your boss look like? Well, I would say that, that it comes back to that question of, of growth and client communication. Um, 
there's one of the things that I hear from the founders that tips their hand when it comes to biting the bullet on a succession plan is that they hear from clients or they hear from prospects that they're concerned about the, uh, the career horizon of the founder. Yeah. And um, both the, the founders, we call them G1, the first generation, um, and then G2 or G3 for the, the successor. So it's kind of an easy shorthand that we use. Um, but they'll, the, the G1s and the D2s will come together and say that it is really great client messaging when the, the plan is complete to say, you know, if something happens to Sue or John, then there's Pat, Sam, and Steve that are here that can continue to serve the clients and they're owners and they're invested and they're not going anywhere. They're part of the business. They're part of my succession plan. Um, and that is a, a tremendously powerful message to send to the clients. Um, when we, we've got founders who come to us and they notice that they're not getting new prospects because it's, you know, they have a, a 40-year-old professional who's got a, a you know, $50,000 stock, uh, stock plan that they've just received from their employer uh, or they've got an inheritance from their um, from someone in their family who's passed away and so they have a windfall and they need to invest it and for the first time in their life they're considering actually paying for financial advice so they come and see a financial advisor that you know they found on google or they had a referral from but they're looking at their time horizon as as 20 30 40 years you know whatever their life expectancy is going to be and the wealthy do live longer and they're looking at a financial advisor who's a bit long in the tooth and asking, well, how long are you going to be here? Because I don't want to have to change financial advisors over and over again. And so being able to present a, a good argument for um, improving that client message is, is one tack. Um, the other is, is recognizing the growth of the business and recognizing the capacity uh, that, that you have to serve clients and what you can do together better as partners. But first and foremost, you have to be acting as an owner, even when you're an employee. So, you know, one of the questions that comes up a lot is, you know, do I need to be out there being the rainmaker, finding new clients? If you're going to be an owner, in your opinion, do you need to be out there finding clients? Like, does that, is that part of what it means to think like an owner? I think uh, in especially in this industry, every job has a bit of a sales component in it. Um, but I was, I've been reading through the, uh, the latest um, book on entrepreneurship with, uh, by the Gallup folks. And they actually, um, they summarize it really nicely that in any business that has grown and thrived, uh, even in, in divisions within, um, within a larger corporation or organization, there are three personalities that, that grow and that lead a business to that, you know, to be really a sizable consideration rather than a, a tiny little boutique place. And that's the, um, the alpha conductor, the person who un- understands all of the, the daily operations and is, is really the sausage maker. Um, they have the alpha rainmaker and then the, and then the expert. Um, so the rainmaker is just one part of, growing a thriving business. And when we're putting together succession plans, when we've got teams that are working with us uh, to, to broaden that, 
uh, that ownership base. I mean, sometimes it's a one-to-one. There's a, a single G1 and a single G2, but usually there's a couple of advisors that are participating in that successor role. So somebody needs to be the rainmaker, and that's uh, you know that's true in all of these businesses. In in some circumstances, by broadening the equity circle and bringing in owners that are going to share the burden and the responsibility for making making sure that the business runs smoothly day in and day out, that can free up the founder to just focus on relationships and, and rainmaking, and not have to be engaged on a day to day basis with making the sausage. So you've got employees that are reliable. Uh, you've got next on advisors that are maintaining the client relationships. They're conducting the trades. They're handling the paperwork. They're, you know, maybe somebody's interested in, in the marketing message to bring you into social media in a, in an effective way. The founder, the, the G1 can focus on rainmaking in the future the successors need to at least build a team so that they they have that skill set among them. But the the personality and the skills of of a business owner who takes who takes that financial advising practice from nothing up to a million dollars in revenue and two hundred clients, that's not the same skill set that your successors need. And as next-gen advisors, you don't need to be all things to all people. You do need to be adaptable and dynamic, but it's important to have a couple of things that you do really well and recognize where you can leverage your skills with your partners, with the founder, with, um, you know, with employees or interns. So you do need to be able to generate business. I mean, that goes without saying, but whether the business needs to transfer from a rainmaker to a rainmaker, it's not as as direct as that. It's not as simple as that. So we have a lot of conversations with founders actually to try to make sure that they understand that, that the skill set that they're looking for in successors is not the same skill set that they brought to make the business. And that's fine. You don't need to have builders in the successor pool, you need to have growers, you need to have managers. And so the next-gen advisors need to absolutely recognize that that sales is, is essential. You need to be able to close the deal. And I don't think anybody overlooks that. Um, but you need to be able to collaborate and recognize where you do have shortcomings and leverage yourself with really great partners. And I think that's part of making your business case, too, is to approach your owner and say, you know, we've got two of us here who make a great team and we would like to build our future here with you. How do we, how do we get ownership of the business? That can be the start of the conversation. The attitude is shifting um, of newer planners that I talk to who say, you know, I don't want to be in sales or, you know, they're kind of not fearful of that rainmaking, um, but you're just not quite sure that being an owner is right for them. What would be your advice to those people who are really trying to find their place, if you would, um, on where, you know, if they want to even be an owner? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think it's really important to figure out what ownership means to you and what, what are you worried about with ownership? Um, you know, what are you resistant to? Um, 
for a lot of our G1s, they got into this industry and really they bootstrapped it. And they came into the business when it was picking up the phone book and you're dialing for dollars. And as a, a next-gen advisor, you're looking at that legacy going, oh boy, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to to start from nothing and you know, I've got student loans to pay. I, I can't I can't go without a paycheck for for even a month, uh, let alone four or five. So, what is it about ownership that is that is daunting or is distasteful to you? Um, you know, before I came to, to FP Transitions, I worked in a couple of other fields, uh, but for entrepreneurs, the the whole time, and the the thing that those businesses had in common with a lot of financial advisors is. Um, you know, a passion for service and a passion for the community. Um, you know, I, I ran a vocational school and uh, I worked in our, our local wine industry. And those, those businesses are so far removed from financial advising, but they have that common thread that they are passionate uh, about their community and they're, uh, they're passionate about their, their field. And I think a lot of financial advisors share that. And when you get into uh, when you get into a field where you're able to connect with connect connect with your community, connect with others, and really provide an impact on their lives, um, you know, financial planning isn't all altruistic, but there are definitely warm fuzzies that come with working with your clients. You can focus on that and then define ownership however you need to. The the culture in each practice that we work with is as unique as, as the people within it. And so you might have a, a firm that has a, a culture that is very sales-oriented, that is very, um, very aggressive. And if that's not what you're interested in, then you don't want to be an owner in that business. And it, it's, it's challenging and it's daunting to to get to that stage in your in your career or in your job at a certain place and recognize that that culture isn't what you want to be doing that that culture isn't a place that you want to be for the rest of your career and to have the courage to walk away especially if you've invested you know 4 or 5 years with a firm and you're not feeling it of course you don't want to be an owner if the culture isn't right but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a very valuable part of the leadership team someplace else where the, where the interest and the ethics are more aligned. You know, you talked about succession planning. And I think one of the things that, well, shoot, now even being an owner of my own practice, you know, I, I hear succession plan and I immediately think it's a timeline to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. Does there need to be an endpoint for the original owner in the succession plan? Not, not necessarily. For a good amount of G1s that come to us, if it's not client-driven, it's their own timeline-driven, and they they're starting to have um, they're starting to have notions of their own mortality. Um, so that they start a succession plan knowing I want to get out in five to ten years, and they have a timeline. Um, but that's not necessarily a given, uh, especially with with teams that approach us when the founder is younger. Um, it's generally more of a growth plan, and so we're actually trying to get 
get the industry to talk about succession more in terms of business sustainability and business growth because you are, um, even if you let somebody into the equity circle, that doesn't, that doesn't start a clock ticking for the founder. Um, and we've got younger and younger advisors that are coming to us in order to create a team to, to acknowledge the contribution and the, the commitment of their younger advisors and to bring them into the equity circle so that they can all be stronger together. They can, they can play off of each other. Um, it provides flexibility to the founder and there's certainly an option that they could leave. Um, but I would say the minority of plans that we create have a fixed uh, timeline as far as the, the departure of the founder. Back in April at Retreat, the FPA released their the report from the survey that they did on succession planning, on the succession challenge. And it, it was still clear that most advisors, they recognized that they need to do a succession plan, but they weren't doing anything. Um, and and I think part of that reason is that misconception that if I start a succession plan, that means I'm on the way out. And so that's why I think it's it's important for both founders and and the next gen group to to consider the the steps that go into a succession plan as a growth strategy and not the end of any single advisor's career. The the same steps that go into building a strong and cohesive team, uh, a, a team with alignment, are the same things that, yes, as a byproduct, do create a viable succession plan. But the near-term outcome and the near-term goal is often that, that they can support their growth and they can sustain their business and they have uh, more resilience within that team because they're all contractually locked together. Um, so the long-term outcome is, yes, succession plan. Um, and certainly a, a good amount of, of founders are beginning with the end in mind, as you should. But the near-term outcome is that you have a better team to grow the business stronger and to create better alignment between your key employees, those most valuable employees that are also licensed advisors, and the founder who has built that business from scratch. You know, one of the things you keep talking about is growth strategy. And I talked to a number of advisors and know quite a few situations where you have an older advisor and they're not really growing. They have a great life and they're getting a really good income doing what they're doing. Does growth need to be part of a succession plan? Growth is a necessary part of a succession plan because that's how both the, the founders and the successors are going to increase their own wealth. Um, I think the next gen advisors who come into a succession plan are are doing it to further their own careers and and as a byproduct of that or perhaps the leading factor of that they want to be able to earn more uh, on their own and you can do it better it's the concept of building on the shoulders of giants right if you've got a business that is running well and the founder recognizes that and is able to, you know, take some long weekends here and there, then the successors can come in and say, hey, boss, you've built a great business. I want the opportunity to build a great business, and I want to build on top of yours. So let's see where we can take this in the next 10 years. I want to take the lead on that. Let's 
do this as a partnership. Give me a chance. And, you know, use stronger terms if you need to. But um, for, for both the founders and the successors to really get the financial gains, they, they need to be growth-minded, um, more so the next generation than the, the founders, uh, because they've already grown it. They've shown that they can do it. You know, they've earned their chops. And that's part, of, that's part of making the business case as well. If you're in a next-gen position, you need to, at the very least, pay, pay the lip service to your founders, but recognize that they have built this business from the ground up. And it may not be perfect, and there may be parts of running the business that, that your G1 is not great at, but you need to acknowledge that whatever the weaknesses may be, warts and all, they've built a business that you you now want to be an owner of. And that's part of the, the goodwill and the good faith that you can bring to the table when you're saying, I want to be an owner. Um, you know, the, the G2s that I, I was speaking with, um, you know, I, I had a nice long conversation uh, just last week, uh, family succession. They say, even though we're the kids, you can't be entitled to ownership. We didn't feel entitled to ownership. My dad could have taken this and sold it out to somebody else. I, we have to earn it. I had to earn the right to get here, and I need to earn the right to stay here. And it's, it's part of, you know, ownership is a state of mind. And uh, recognize the work that has come from the founders to get, where, to get where you are. What would be your advice to the person who's kind of on the fence of whether or not they're thinking of starting their own firm versus, you know, pitching the idea of a succession plan to where they're working now or possibly trying to find somebody who's looking for a succession plan. When you start to feel like you're swimming upstream, what do you do? If you're not getting anywhere with the conversations with your founder, how much do you continue pushing or yeah. do you just go and open your own? I mentioned that I, I handled the recruiting and I, I get to wear some of the, some of the HR hat here. Um, and the expression that comes up uh, in these kinds of situations is when expectations turn to hope, that's when it's time to end it. Oh gosh. That's and good. <laughs> um, I don't know where that came from aside from Brad Bierman, uh, but um, Google will probably tell you when, when you're, when you're working with somebody kind of no matter what the relationship is, um, if it's, your, if it's your superior that you want to have uh, try to make some changes or give you some opportunities or recognize your contribution and your expectation is that you're going to go out and bring in a great client and they're going to come in and be part of the, the firm and that's going to generate a long-term relationship and you're going to get credit for that, then, I mean, that's, that's terrific. You know, you should be building the business and bringing in clients and doing a great job and getting credit for it. But when you start to come into the office every day and you're, you're hoping things are going to be all right. And, uh, you know, it, it, it could go badly. Well, then you need to take a very close look at yourself and, and have the courage to recognize what it is. And maybe that leads you to open your own RIA. If you've got that, if you are an entrepreneur and you have that within you, but the solution might be otherwise to recognize what it is and 
have a candid conversation and say, I think my career continues elsewhere. At next-gen advisors are very hard to find qualified talent. And if you can find a place that's going to be the right cultural fit for you, then, you know, then you can thrive. I know people are listening to this and they're like, I'm qualified talent and I cannot find anywhere to work. <laughs> where, where do people go to find those great fits? That's one thing that I, that I wish we did uh, better here, uh, matchmaking for the, the G2s um, in an employment capacity. Um, you've got to look at it the same way that you would for, uh, for finding clients. You got to, that's the place that you have to be a rainmaker for yourself. Um, the, the place that I tend to go is, is, you know, just referring into recruiting firms. Um, go back to your, um, your college of financial planning, um, alumni association and, and make connections there. Um, the FPA is a really great resource. Uh, attend meetings and let people know that you, you know, you're, you're looking to be part of somebody's business. You want to be part of somebody's succession plan. Um, make sure that you have clear expectations and that you communicate those to the people that you're networking with. Um, if you want to be part of a business and part of a succession plan, uh, you know, define what that means in a cover letter. You know, are you coming into the business because you want to take it over or are you coming into the business because you want to be a valuable part of the team with a long-term plan to join the equity circle and continue growing the business into the, the unforeseen future, you know? Um, but you need to be able to be a rainmaker for yourself when it does come time to make that decision. So you talk about expectations with succession plans and I know you have so many great success stories. But like, what are realistic expectations for the G2 advisors, for the next-gen advisors to have walking into a succession plan? One of the things that we really try very hard to do um, when we're putting together a succession plan, we, we end up doing all, um, some compensation reengineering. Um, it's not unusual that clients come to us and they're using an entirely commissions-based structure, uh, a revenue split um, for for all of the employees. Um, and so we, we do a lot of reengineering to put them into a, a, a flat salary, a predictable salary-based uh, compensation with bonuses that are based on um, measurable business objectives. Um, the, the goal when we do that is to not create a pay cut for anybody because that creates, that doesn't, that doesn't um, generate good faith right out the gate. Um, but in, in the process, um, a reasonable expectation is during the first couple of years, you're not going to see a lot of changes financially. Um, we, you, you need to be, um, prepared to invest and that's going to take some give and take. But one of the things that we do, and I, I of course can't speak for other consultants or other, uh, if you go to a local attorney and have things put together, but um, we create the mechanism for the the next gen to invest in the founder's business, uh, and then we we uh, model out the cash flow so that the business has a profit line, so that those note payments can be made. And in the first couple of years, the majority of the profit that a successor uh, 
that a successor would receive does get committed to the uh, the note payment. But as the business grows, and this is why I say growth is essential for both the founders and the successors, um, as the business grows, then the successors will see the um, their profit distributions increase, and a smaller portion of that is going to go to satisfy their note obligation uh, to buy out the founder. Um, so that's that's why we do the work to uh, to make salary predictable, so that you can meet your needs and have a comfortable lifestyle. That's incredibly important, especially in this industry. But we also make sure that the uh, salary obligation is equally predictable so that the team can work together to drive profits, to grow profits. Uh, because if you, don't have, if you don't have your compensation within the business structured in a way that is fair and predictable, then it's very hard to grow the business and to be profitable when you have multiple owners. So um, that one of the first things that I would say to expect is, is small changes uh, on the outset. Um, one of my one of my favorite case studies um, is a, a team of a founder with four junior advisors um, who had come to us after going through all kinds of uh, like management psychology exams, and uh, they had gone to at least two other consultants who had put them through this battery of tests before uh, they started building a plan for them. And the, the psychologist had said, this team won't work. <laughs> you guys, you're not compatible or you're not complementary or whatever it was. So you could invest however many thousands of dollars in a plan, but we're predicting that it's doomed to failure on the outset. So take that in mind. And they went, well, nuts to that. I'm going to go to somebody who says it's possible. Um, and they eventually found their way to us. And we said, well, if you guys are committed to working together and you want to do it, let's see what we can put together. Um, you know, it's it's their it's their boat to row. So, um, we we worked with them. It was about a two million dollar business uh, in terms of uh, in terms of value. Um, so we worked with them. Um, we we engineered the compensation. We normalized the compensation. Um, we created uh, a profit line. We helped to structure the note. The seller did take. Um, to take the note personally, so there wasn't bank financing involved uh, in in the initial tranche, uh, and there usually isn't. So that's why we have to have the profitability uh, coming through to the bottom line. Um, but the the four junior advisors all got an equal stake of um, of ownership, and then they you know they signed their documents and they went on to run the business. Uh, a couple months later, we heard from the, from the founder that he was he was doing groceries or something on a Saturday, and he drove past the office and he saw all the lights on and starts shaking his fist. Those boys, they left all the lights on. I I bring them in to to be owners and they can't even control the electricity. And uh, he pulls into the driveway and and uh, goes into the office. Um, it was a it was an office that was in a, like an old house. Um, in a historic neighborhood, that kind of thing. And he goes inside and he sees that there's three of the guys that are sitting in there working on financial plans and, and uh, cleaning up documents. And they're in the office on Saturdays, on the Saturday mm-hmm. to do the work. And that's why the lights were on. And, and the founder's like, oh, uh, 
hi, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect to see you here. Um, but they, they all knew that they had, you know, they'd made client commitments and that they were going to keep the clients happy and they were going to make sure that, uh, they hit their revenue targets that they'd all created so that they could get their profit distributions, um, that they needed to make sure that they got all the work done. So it, it wasn't everybody. Um, but you know, they each had their own little story afterwards. Um, but they were in, they were in the office on the Saturday to make sure that everything got done much to the, you know, the founders shock and surprise. So, um, kind of a, a funny little anecdote on the, the impact that being an owner can, uh, can have on a, on an employee mentality. You know, you're just a little bit more committed. Um, the, that story is a fun one because, um, you know, the founder did that succession plan actually lasted about four years. Um, and then the founder had gotten a, a bit of a taste of extra freedom and accelerated his, his timeline to retire. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, we started out with four successors. Uh, one of them did fail. Um, and so the, the four other owners, the founder and the, the three remaining successors had a conversation with the one person who wasn't, um, you know, a great fit as an owner. Um, their, their mentality actually didn't jive with the, the rest of the team. Um, and they went back to their shareholders agreement and they, they bought out that, um, that one junior partner, but the other three remaining advisors did, um, did accelerate and they bought out the founder after about four years um, because the business had been growing and they had been working so well. And the founder got some extra time out of the office and went, you know what? I have a couple of hobbies that I've neglected and I've been able to enjoy them in the last four years. And I think I'm going to enjoy them a little bit more. And um, so they, they just went forward and, and called the bank and, they took over the whole business, um, three equal partners at the end of the day. And, uh, and now they're, they're leading the ship all on their own. When people become part owner, do they get to be part decision maker at that point? Or how does that usually work? There, there's a lot of concern from founders around giving up control. Um, it's important to have a seat at the table. You're when, when you're in a, a founder's position, uh, and you open up the equity circle to let to let somebody invest in the business. You have to listen to their to their suggestions. You have to listen to their opinions. It's just it's just being polite, right? But when you're talking about uh, opening up a ten percent investment opportunity, then the founder still owns ninety percent of the business. Um, you know, in in that kind of a situation, you still have all of the control, and so the the minority partnership is a great opportunity for some people it might be very frustrating but it's about creating teamwork and and synergy and the founder will maintain the decision making will have the decision making seat um but even as a minority partner you need to be able to speak up and, and have your voice heard. Um, there's a, a team we worked with 
down in Florida who was totally, totally charming <laughs> when they addressed their, um, you know, the dynamic between the the three advisors, the founder and the two successors. Um, and one of the successors had said, you know, sometimes it was frustrating to listen to the G1 uh go on and on about, you know, how I built my business from nothing. And, uh, you know, I know what I'm doing. And the, the successor said, I come up with these, what I thought were great ideas and he just shoot them down. And, you know, it's frustrating because sometimes it turned out that he was right. <laughs> and <laughs> there is, there is a lot to be said for experience and it can be very hard for a, a next gen advisor who's got, you know, five, 10 years of experience to, to go, you know, you just shot me down. But, the founder might have 25 or 30 years of, of experience. And so, you know, they do get to make the decision. And the important thing is to keep the right perspective. And if if you've come up with an idea that gets shot down, then, you know, approach it from a different angle if you really believe in it. And, you know, see if there's if there's a different approach that you can take to get that, to get to that goal that, you know, whether it's a business development idea or a technology investment or, um, you know, deviating into a different niche, you've got to be able to make the business case for it. So you should have a seat at the table. You're an owner. But for most plans, until you get to that 50-50 level, the founder retains decision-making control. If somebody is really interested in succession planning where can they go? What are the other resources or the resources that they need to be reading or tapping into uh, to really prepare themselves for these conversations or, or being a, a successor? I don't want this to sound hugely self-serving, but it's going to come across that way. Um, <laughs> I queued you uh, up. David Grass Sr. <laughs> David Grass Sr. wrote a really great book a couple of years ago, um, Succession Planning for Financial Advisors. And there's there are so many people that we talk with that start their conversation with well, I read David's book, and it's it's a good tool because it talks about some of the different um, the different strategies and dispels some of the misconceptions on succession planning as the plan that starts the starts the stopwatch for the founder. Um, and so it's actually I've been trying not to say this for <laughs> for how can I get my boss to think of me as a successor. Give him a copy of David's book. Yeah. Um, David is the founder of our of our company. He's seen a lot of these kinds of struggles and changes that an entrepreneur goes through building a business from nothing, and and he's focused exclusively on financial advisors his entire career. Um, so the information that's in that that book speaks to founders and successors, but really a lot to founders. Um, explaining the mechanics, the financing, the benefits, the incentives. Um, he he explains it all uh, in, in a lot of detail. So that would be the first, the most powerful resource that, that I would um, that I would send people to. Um, I'd also, you know, go to FPA meetings where you've got advisors that are talking about the topic and, and just see what kind of conventional wisdom is out there. Um, and then go back and read the book again. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, is there anything else that you want to be sure that we cover? 
well, one of the things that I hear from a lot of folks is just bloom where you're planted. If you can make the most of your situation and be an owner and create the relationship with your founder so that they they can see you as a successor because you you're just thriving where you are. Um, that's that's what I hear from from a lot of the successful successors is some variation on bloom where you're planted. Um, for uh, for founders that uh, aren't sure where they're going to look, um, uh, there was a there was a podcast that I was listening to. Uh, just the other day about CEOs, and they referenced a um, a study that came out just after the um, just after the crash. It was like a, a 2009 2010 academic study on um, on corporate performance when CEOs changed, and the study found that when the CEO of a publicly traded company was sourced internally, was promoted internally, the performance of that company of that company was somewhere 20 to 30% higher uh, than the firms that brought in an outside CEO. Wow. Um, uh, a corresponding figure, the, um, the CEOs that were sourced externally were millions of dollars more expensive for these companies to recruit and to hire. Um, and this is looking at fortune 500 companies. So these are looking at, at multinational businesses, right? But the same kind of concepts can be applied looking looking inward at the financial planning industry. A lot of founders are looking at at, at their successors and going, no, I, I need to bring in somebody from the outside or I'm not ready to let this go and I'm just going to sell it externally. But if you're trying to find the person that's going to do the best job for the business, the internal recruit, the internal successor knows the most about your business, knows the most about your clients and can generate stronger, better returns for your business than necessarily bringing somebody in from the outside. Um, so for the successors, bloom where you're planted, make the best of your situation and think like an owner. Uh, and if you're a founder, take a look at your internal at your internal staff because it might be that the most effective person to continue your legacy and to build the business on top of your shoulders is that is that person that you've already hired and trained and indoctrinated into your culture and to your client needs. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Christine. Thank you, Hannah. It's been very nice talking with you. FP Transitions is committed to creating enduring businesses for financial professionals. We are leaders in promoting the sustainability of the industry. We have created over 800 next-generation business owners through succession planning and enterprise development. FPA members can learn more about next generation strategy, financing, and communication at fptransitions.com slash nextgenerationfpa. FP Transitions is a strategic partner of the FPA and a proud sponsor of the Next Gen community. Like you, we believe in the power of planning. If you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and FPA board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.